Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. Hope you're all healthy and safe and wherever you are in the world, keeping yourself amused in quarantine. On today's episode, I have the Head of Sports Science for Harlequins Rugby, Tom Batchelor. We had Ed Lee from Harlequins on the show not too long ago and Tom, like Ed, is very transparent about how he and Harlequins do things on the sports science and conditioning side of rugby. In this episode, Tom and myself discuss GPS in rugby, comparing physical data with game-based variables, load management interpretation, and conditioning the modern rugby player. We are probably going to be getting more guests on the show than normal, or at least more frequently than normal, with everybody in sport being housebound currently. So make sure that you're subscribed to ensure that you don't miss any episodes from us. Anyway, without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Tom Batchelor. Tom, mate, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, giving up some time and coming on. No, it's a, it's a, it's a welcome pleasure, mate. Um, just for the listeners who, who might be first discovering you in this episode, could you just kind of tell us who you are, what you do, and a little bit about your background? Yeah, so I've been at Quinns now for seven years, uh, which includes a year as an intern. So six years um, working with the sports science stuff there. Uh, when I first came in, there was no GPS, no load monitoring, no wellness monitoring. Um, like they had systems, but it was very much done like on a day-to-day feedback system. And there were some like high-level weekly summary reports, but it wasn't really what I think most professional teams now have in terms of their load monitoring setups. Prior to my time at Quinn's, I was at the Surrey Sports Park, which is basically a gym that is owned by the University of Surrey. Um, and it, it works with the public, but it also works with all of their university athletes. And whilst I was there, I did my internship under a guy called uh, James Wilde, who's a sprint biomechanist now and uh, and, and an S&C coach as well. Um, and prior to that, I actually worked in the city. So I was, I worked in investment banking. I worked for a French bank called BNP Paribas and I worked with their prime brokerage team working in um, equity derivatives, uh, like working with hedge funds and stuff, um, which gave me like quite a good start, I guess, to my sort of like professional life in terms of working with data and working in um, high pressured environments and performance environments. So there's like some crossover with the sports stuff now, but there's also a lot of differences culturally and and work-wise obviously um but yeah i think like a lot of that stuff actually set me up quite well to then work in sports science so that's that's kind of what took me through i think is like originally i was an snc coach but then once i started my internship at quinn's i got my hands on the the gps data and started to try and make some sense of that and try and try and push things forward in terms of how we how we load the guys and how we look after the guys so a few areas I want to tackle with you, excuse the the rugby pun, knowing some of your your personal professional interests, uh, you know, GPS that you just said, load management, and um, and we'll get on to some conditioning stuff as the as the kind of three big things we'll try and hit today. Um, let's let's start with the GPS maybe, and you know, a lot of the audience will have experience using GPS systems, or at least most of the audience will have some familiarity with GPS monitoring, and at the very least, um, just appreciate the general benefits of it. As a as a sports scientist in Quinns and obviously in rugby, rugby as a game can be a bit of a mess in terms of different running speeds, tactical plays, the physical attributes of the game, um, and all those kind of physiologic variables if you're trying to analyze it. So if you're using, say, 
GPS and uh, speed zones or banding uh, by themselves, you can't fully understand the load or the work done on the field. Um, as a kind of sports scientist with your you, perhaps your personal strengths with data and numbers to appraise data, um, how do you kind of navigate the benefits and weaknesses of GPS for rugby specifically? Yeah, well, I think like you you um, you touched on a lot of of things that I'd actually agree with there. Like as a as a young um, SNC coach, sports scientist, when I first came into Quinns, you kind of I kind of thought that GPS would go a long way to quantifying the stresses and it still forms a key tenant of how we quantify load but I think a lot of it now from my perspective I think I understand it in much better context and I think I understand it um, in much greater detail that enables us to actually use it in a beneficial way like I think rugby has a couple of nuances that make it very difficult from some other team sports um, like in your average game of premiership rugby, you're probably actually only playing rugby for about 40 minutes of it. So half the game is not actually, like half the time of the 80 minutes is not actually when rugby's being played. Um, so all of a sudden things like average speed, like metres per minute, can give you sometimes a, a jilted view because the referee can have a bigger impact on metres per minute by how much time is on and off if you just view metres per minute from start of the game to the end of the game. So then looking at board and play times and board and play per minute becomes quite key. Um, and then likewise, like you said as well, rugby's not really... It's a running-based sport as in you run from collision to collision, but the key parts of the games are the collisions and the running demands aren't exceptionally high, especially when you compare it to something like an AFL uh, rugby league, football, especially like those games, like their running demands way exceed ours. So in terms of how that informs the conditioning that we do or how that informs our load management, I think that's a key thing to keep in mind when it comes to the GPS. Um, so I think that's the, the, the first thing that I always own mind is how much rugby isn't quantified by GPS. And then when we do look at the GPS stuff and the stuff that we find to be reliable, so the velocity bands, um as a as a theoretical system the use of velocity bands makes a lot of sense especially where like it's the background of it's obviously from sort of endurance sports and endurance running where if you're going to go out and set like a, a 5k time and you're going to base your training off of that 5k pace so say it's like four minutes per kilometer you can then use that as a threshold that you'll know when you're working at certain intervals above that threshold or below that threshold so it gives you an easy way of like benchmarking your training so you know how long you're spending in particular zones compared to your threshold the problem with the rugby bands is that because it's not all running based all of a sudden that work that's chunked into lower bands so like your zone one stuff that maybe is like everything below walking speed usually in most systems that's equated to being easy work if that makes sense the problem is, of course, is that a lot of that stuff at lower speeds in rugby can sometimes be the um, the hardest work. Like a scrum is the best example. Like in a scrum, GPS unit literally registers pretty much nothing. Now, Catapult have put a lot of good work into being able to register when it is a scrum, and and that's certainly helpful. I mean, we, we currently rely on our video analysts, and we're looking at how reliable the Catapult uh, metric is to actually better count scrums. 
again, like the GPS unit and a velocity-based banding system doesn't really quantify that slow speed work. Like Likewise, work in malls, works in rucks, it's not actually quantified by the GPS. So I think when we, we have like a weekly meeting myself, Gaz Tong, who's head of um, athletic performance, and then Mike Lancaster, who's head of medicine, we sit down once a week. And I think it's that we kind of stress quite frequently is that what we're looking at in a rugby union con- or in any context is that the GPS is telling us how far and how fast someone ran. It doesn't mean the lower level meters necessarily are easier meters. Um, as long as you know how those velocity bands obviously work, you can then start to extrapolate out and start to uh, make some assumptions around the different types of stress the athletes are going through day to day, week to week. Um, and that's why like, I think that's the thing. Like, I understand guys who work in AFL and premiership football and more running based sports. I understand um, why GPS is probably the first place they go to. Um, I just think the nature of the union means it's a flawed way of thinking um, because the sport, like, mo- there's 75% of the injuries happen in contact. Most of the key things that happen in a game happen in contact. And these are things that are not probably best quantified by a GPS unit. And I think it can make you quite myopic if you just stare at GPS numbers. You might start missing the things that actually matter. And I guess as well, the those parts of the game that are more, you know, um, load heavy as well in rugby are also the parts of the game that give you the greatest challenge recovery-wise as well, rather than yes. running. Yeah, exactly. Like So if you looked at a, a tight head prop, um, and we've got some pretty good ones at the club, like they might do like... 55 to 65 meters per minute over the whole like 90 odd minutes that a premiership rugby game now is. Um, and you looked at that and be like, well, actually that's not very impressive. That's me running from the try line to the opposite 10 once a minute for that duration. So I'm not saying it's easy, but like it's, it's certainly not beyond most people's athletic people's running demands. Um, like, so they're looking, you're looking at that guy covering maybe six, seven K, which isn't huge again. But things that most people probably definitely couldn't do is anchor down a scrum and hit 20, 30, 40, maybe even 50 collisions in a game um, with the force that someone like a, a Will Collier or a, a Kyle Sinclair puts out. So I think like when it gets to those type five guys, more and more we're looking at contact loads and that's literally just the counts of carries, tackles, uh, clear outs and scrum counts as well, like both in training and matches, because that gives you an idea of what that athlete's really going through. Um, and then the GPS stuff you're just looking at and you're kind of just looking for those outliers, right? Like if all of a sudden one of the, the tight head prop has a huge game with a lot of sprinting, well, a lot of sprinting compared to his norm is still a lot of sprinting compared to his norm. So that's still a lot of work for him. But the stuff that, you know, I don't, I try not to have GPS as the first thing I go to because um, I think it, it because it's the systems work so well, and like the online cloud reporting systems work so well that it's really easy as a sports scientist to be lazy and just PDF it, send it to a coach, sort it by order of meters per minute, and also they can see who's worked the hardest or done the most work. And I think that's a very, and I don't think many people do that these days, but that's a very flawed way of providing feedback to coaches and players. We had Fergus Connolly not too long ago on the show, and one of the key take-homes or questions that came up was, does it affect the scoreboard? So with this in mind, do you overlay the physical data that contributes to your understanding of player loading with, say, the technical and tactical result from any on-field efforts? 
For example, looking at top-end speed and ball carries or whatever the on-field scenario is. Yes, we try to... um... We try and I'm trying to think of the best term for this. We try, okay, it's an easy term. We try and talk to each other in terms of myself, the performance analytics and coaching teams. We try and talk to each other as much as we possibly can, because ultimately, like, um, so the Fergus is does this? Does it affect the scoreboard? Like, like it doesn't. You have to make sure what you're looking at actually changes some kind of behaviour or changes something. So I think in this day and age, it's really easy to churn out or collect and churn out a lot of data. And that's real easy. But if it's not changing behaviours, whether it's your coaching staff's behaviours or the players' behaviours, it's really useless. Um, and I think in terms of like how we try and act synergistically, like 100%, so we'll look at kick chases and look at top speeds achieved and we'll look at, um, like, so our guys have done so... Uh, Ed and Gaz, who look after the speed program with um, they have, James Wells, does some consulting for us. We look at initial sprint momentums, maximum momentums. So we've got an idea of what each player's forces they carry, they could potentially carry into a collision. So we look at that versus how many carries, clears, etc. We get out of the guys to see it. And it's not the thing is, is you, you go into this kind of hoping you kind of like some golden statistic that's like all right if i can get this guy's sprint momentum up he's going to carry more and we do you find outliers because the more i've worked in sport especially rugby the more appreciation i have for the fact that being an amazing rugby player is what puts you on the pitch being a good athlete is then what can keep you there and can help you maximize your skill set but only there's nuances even in collisions that you can't necessarily get out of purely how heavy and how fast someone is like technique aggression all that kind of stuff even like the running lines the boys pick like they may, might mean they hit collisions at better angles where their opponent is more off balance and therefore that's why they're so effective um, so yeah we do we, we try and talk a lot like kev gill who's our head of analytics he's uh a very switched on cookie so like we try and catch up and talk about what we can overlay what we can try and put together and it's, a, it's an ongoing process like it's not it's not as much as i'd like it to be but it's definitely evolving the way we'd like it to be um and the coaches as well since so since Paul Gustavs comes in like it's pretty much a daily discussion between myself Gaz and then his coaching staff about what we're going to do and then feedbacking back about what we're doing um and that I think like little things that have been changed like we're in one massive open plan office like I think when it was first suggested I think because I come from a business background that I'm quite cynical of I was quite like, yeah, yeah, open plan, like very cute. But actually having that ability just to discuss stuff as and when it kind of comes up, like it can make handling your workflow a bit difficult, but the communication I think is brilliant and that's massively helped us as a performance team, I think. Hmm. And kind of how do you define, uh, it's a bit of a big question, but how do you define load at Quince and, you know, what metrics do you chuck under that umbrella? And then I guess, I guess the second part to that is kind of, what are the key things that you then go and present to um, Paul Gustard or the, or the playing yeah. coaches? So I, I guess the first thing that we definitely don't do is we don't try and look like a one number type situation or like two or three. Like we, obviously you don't want to overload people with information, but I think what I've found over the years is that when you try and figure out like, oh, like can we have like a, a one to 10 scale that equates the training session to match intensity? Like, I get where that's coming from. 
I think the minute you are, the minute we become too reductionist and we like you filter out some of these um, nuances in the data, I think you actually miss the value of that data, right? So we try and keep discussions high level enough that it's quick enough that coaches can make decisions. But then when there's that granularity required to look at player by player, it still has to be there and you still have to do it. Because otherwise, if you try and summarize stuff too much and reduce stuff too much down, I think you actually miss the things that matter. So that's the first point. Like then to actually answer your question. Um, so we will still look at like the, the classics that I think everyone will look at is um, sort of high speed, like individual high speed um, running meters. So we use uh, off the boys individual maxes. We look at sprint meters which is over 80 percent um we still capture accelerations and decelerations and like i'm i'm very aware that there's questions about the reliability of accelerometers but the way that we see it is if you jump from doing 30 in a training session to 90 even if there's some inaccuracies in that that's a big change so we kind of look for mass big changes rather than worrying about it jumping from 35 to 40 we just know if it goes from very little to a lot there must have been some change in the um training demands for that jump to happen with the accelerometer data uh, and with the other stuff so when we feed back to coaches we you know for ages you kind of bounce around like do you feedback total distance but then that has its flaws because that can be skewed by like coaches setting out drills further apart or having like switching periods unit sessions and all kinds of jazz um so what we've actually found is that the real basic just talking about time so how much time is going to be spent in drill how much time is going to be spent on feet I and mean, then the meters per minute because the way our coaches operated and a lot of it is sort of game or drill orientated and we we catalog all of these drills and stuff we we kind of know that a lot of these drills they are very different technically and tactically but often the actual metrics that come out of it are very similar so it's quite easy for us to talk to the coaches about how much time we're going to spend doing games, doing drills, doing some contact work. And and actually, predicting is a really poor word, but it actually means that we're quite comfortable that when we see the training session in front of us that the coaches put together, we then have a good idea about what that's going to look like. And then if we've got individuals that we need to modify, it's quite straightforward for us to chat with Mike and his team, his physiotherapy team, about if there's individuals that need to be mindful of whether it's certain tasks or just generally like reducing the overall volume and makes that a lot easier. So um, we do boil it down to stuff, but like where I think our coaches are very good is they often come with very specific questions because we're quite systematic in the way we train, not a lot changes. And therefore you're often just talking about individuals. So did said individual not do as much as he usually do, um, usually does, usually does. Um, and therefore, is that down to, was there something different about what he was asked to do? Is it different about his behaviours? Is he just working less hard? And that leads on to those discussions. Um, but it allows us, because the system is is quite, um, trying to think, it's, it's been the way it has been now for 18 months and we, we tweak stuff we, and we, we try and improve stuff, but generally we know what we're going to get out of most things. So the discussions is about who do we modify? Did the modifications work? And then about picking up individuals that either weren't doing the work we expected them to do and figuring out why that was, um, or did someone do way more than you kind of hoped? And then you've got to kind of figure out the rest of the week to make sure we get them to the game in the best possible shape. 
Sounds like, from a sports science perspective, the systematic nature of how Quinn's operates allows you to kind of test and retest your interventions or actions in what yeah. is essentially a living rugby lab. Yeah, yeah. The the system that we were quite lucky when Paul came in. So before he came in, Gaz and I had been speaking, and we didn't. The traditional rugby training week is uh, in Monday. Uh, train Tuesday some teams at the time we used to do double sessions on a Tuesday so a unit session followed by or in the morning I'm in a whole rugby session in the afternoon day off Wednesday train Thursday team run Friday game Saturday um, and we sort of from a lot of the data we were looking at we what we basically wanted to figure out is like was the start of our week maximizing the time for our boys to train and were they then getting to the game in a fit state so we looked at uh, so we kind of approached it two, in two different directions. We looked at the number of reviews that we had. So we have a system at Quinn where if someone's identified as a potential risk to not train the next day, they'll be reviewed that morning by the physical team, um, physiotherapy team to see if they're going to train. We also then tracked the number of reviews we had. So we, what we could see is that as people's sequential starts went on, so like people were making, like they'd start three, four, five games back to back, which... Obviously, from a selection point of view, you want some stability, but we now move, we've now moved towards rotating people more, so that does that happens less often. But in some instances, it still happens. Um, what we found was is actually the start of our week was often becoming so heavily modified that the boys actually weren't getting an opportunity to train. So we then went to move to training like very light on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday off, team run Friday play because the way that that worked in our heads, we were like, well, if we get rid of the Thursday session, team one still stays there. But if we move that up towards the Wednesday, it means you're doing less work prior to the game. So you've got this micro peaking phase at the back end of your week, right? But if you bump that day up, something else has to then give on the Monday and the Tuesday to enable that workload to happen on the Wednesday. So how that happened is the Monday then becomes like an install session. So like a, a walk through low level um, build, we called it. So like, uh, the boys are encouraged not to like run fast. Well, we try and limit the space um, and it's very tactically orientated. And then the Tuesday is just a singular session with, there'll be still be units leading into it, but the boys will only be out on pitch like maximum 90 minutes, which is a, a lot less than it used to be. Like forwards used to be out there for like two hours, um, like in two separate one hour, 70 minute long sessions. Um, so when we restructured that week, Obviously, before Paul came in, we were thinking, like, how are we going to convince him of it? And literally on the first phone call we had with Gaz, he was like, yeah, I don't think the normal structure really works. Because from my playing time, I remember always being knackered on a Tuesday. So I think Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, off Thursday work. So like we were kind of like geared up to go into this like um, discussion that never really happened because Paul was already thinking the same thing. So that, that from day one made that easy. Um, so yeah, I had this whole presentation that never saw the light of day. So I was like, okay, sweet, you agree, which is which is great, but just means that I've spent all this time putting this together and never actually showing it to you. Um, which was, but that was good. So like that allowed us, I think, then to have a template to move forward with. And don't get me wrong, like we we've had periods where results haven't gone our way, and then we've we actually at one point tried to flip back. And I think I personally think, like, not saying everyone even at Quinns would agree with this, but I personally think like we then picked up a lot of injuries off the back of that because the structure of the work changed and the workload on the double days massively increased. Um, and the, the injuries then weren't, this is one of the paradoxes with injuries is everyone sort of often assigns the act 
of what was done when the injury happened to being the problem. But I always look at it as a straw that broke the camel's back thing. So the injury might happen, you know, four day, like it might, it might happen in something fairly innocuous, but the damage may have been done in the days prior that like where you've put the athlete into a state where it's less able to cope. And then something has come along that has led to them not being able to cope and getting injured. Um, yeah. Like you said, like it, it, having that structure and now that we've gone back prior to the coronavirus outbreak, we'd gone back to that structure. It makes it really easy for us to plan and modify people um, because we know what's coming. Yeah. And you've, you've said this um, already that there's no kind of perfect singular number that summarizes load, but do you still kind of try to pull together the different numbers into say like an acute chronic workload ratio um, or Um, something similar to communicate load? So we did, um, I think because, so we're lucky that we had, have Kitman um, and that like, you know, with a couple of clicks and also even in Excel, like within a couple of like formulas, you've got your acute chronic or anything that you want to have it of. Um, And I guess before like starting off down this, uh, this answer, like what I should say, like Tim Gabbett's original stuff was done around uh, SRE, right? So that's not what we're using. So the minute we've gone away from that, it's a bastardization of what Tim was doing. We found with all of our like GPS metrics that there was like no relationship with injury whatsoever. Um, I know that um, I always pronounce his name wrong. So if I do this now, I'm going to apologize. But Mr. Prezelli, Prezelli, I can't, it's the Italian. Yeah, yeah, uh, Franco Imperazzeri. Franco, yeah, exactly. Franco Imperazzeri, yeah. So, like, and I, I really, I like a lot of his, um, his work and, so I'm not going to go over his stuff because A, it's his stuff and B, he understands it way better than I do. But I just found, so in our practical setting, we did it for two years, looked through all the data, had no relationship to injury whatsoever. Um, and in case, in, in some of our metrics, we actually had an inversion of the curve. So in terms of like the risk actually went up when you were between the 0.8 and 1.2. Um so yeah, to summarise and, and succinctly answer, no, we don't use acute chronic. But what I would say is, um, when it comes to that data, what it's made me realise or think at least is that I think it's really easy to either way on this jump on the bandwagon, like everyone did when it first came out. I think everyone started to use acute chronic, um, and not everyone. There's obviously some people who never used it, but a lot of people started using it, myself included. And I think, um, in fairness to to Tim Gabbert, like obviously he's done that with his data set, and he found it and he thought it's useful. Hence why he published it. What it's taught me is before you use stuff, you should probably always do your own analysis because there will be nuances of your sport, your setup, the way you measure things that may mean that someone else's system of analysis is not beneficial. Do you know what I mean? Like I think it's really now for everyone to jump back the other way and be like yeah acute chronic's rubbish like it's complete bollocks like why why would you ever use it but i think that's the same problem again because if you then look at franco's new paper i wonder how many people actually understand the statistics that sit behind his study that shows that it doesn't work do you see what i mean Mm, yeah no completely i think what everyone or what i've not everyone so what i should learn out of this whole thing is like if you're going to use a thing that's systematic like that, 
do your own analysis first. Like by all means, like, so the way we did it is we were like, we're not sure it's going to work, but let's just stick it in there for two years. We never really changed any decisions off the back of it. Um, and at the end of the two years, we looked at it and went, okay, it doesn't work for us in this setting. Um, so we don't use a, a, a workload number like that. That said, what we do or what I do like about it is it tells you what is the ratio of the last one week's work to the last four weeks in terms of running meters. So like, if you imagine, we've already spoken about what I think about using running meters to quantify stress in a rugby union player. So that's already got some issues and I've already got issues with acute chronic. So there's a line on our graph sometimes that is the acute chronic ratio. No point will we ever pull someone out of training based off the back of it. All it allows you to do is really quickly do the maths of like, how much work have we done this week compared to what they're used to in the last four weeks? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a visualization almost. And, and that's what it is. Cause I think the minute you reduce it to like a one number thing or a couple of number things, you, <clears throat> you missed. And that's what we found. Like we'd be like, Oh, like his GPS was a good and his training, like time, all that kind of stuff. That's all good. And then what you've potentially missed is that um, actually he's gone from being a bench tight head, to starting tight head. So he's now doing 20 more scrums and, 15 of those are in a match. So the load going through his spine is way higher. You just If you end up looking at a one thing, I think it's really easy to, to miss it. So we just try and have an idea. When we talk about type five or props, especially, we're talking about scrum numbers. We're talking about uh, collisions. Um, when we're talking about anyone, we're looking at match minutes. We're looking at consecutive match minutes because, you know, you get to certain stages of season where you look back and you go, this guy's, been involved in every game for 12 games straight so psychologically emotionally physically he's not had a, a weekend off and then we're looking at it and go well he's also trained every single session as well which in some ways is like a great thing you want people to participate in the training that makes it better as much as possible on the flip side after 12 weeks you're like maybe this guy just needs a monday off like you know we'll tell him not to come into the club just to relax for an extra day or maybe he'll come into the club and have physio or we send them away to like a float tank if that's what they like. And and that's kind of how we try and discuss load, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I always kind of wonder if, you know, in trying to gather all the scientific data and, and simplifying a complex uh, problem, actually the, the best solution is in front of us in the dashboard. And then, you know, the art of the job is, can you actually understand the dashboard and communicate it and act off it? But I think we're always trying to get, you know, such a simple solution to such a complex problem that maybe maybe doesn't exist maybe it's just you know the art around how you how you navigate it yeah i mean 100 like that's i think it's all way too complicated like everything we do even if we summarize it with like 10 numbers is still reduction from what is actually going on and what's actually a very complicated thing like regardless of what someone an acute chronic number of like one can be very different for two different people depending on um training age what those <clears throat> those uh, training load units whether it's srpe or distances is made up of it can be very different depending on like sleep it can be very different depending on what else is going on in their life like that number cannot relate to the physiological state of that person's body like it cannot necessarily relate to the phys- like different loads are going to do different things to different people's um musculature so having one number that's comparable across both just doesn't make any sense physiologically it's not like we don't I mean, we, we don't actually have, now I'm trying to think, we, we have like dashboards as in like there might, there'll be views 
uh, in Kitman and Power BI that summarize players, but we don't have it set up in such a way. There's like there's no traffic light system. Um, we like, maybe on some screening stuff like groin squeezes and stuff. There'll be like a red for someone who's not good, but it's always discussed in the context of other things. Yeah, I guess you can only really apply the traffic lights to singular tests. You can't really do a traffic light that compares no. uh, very different data sets. Exactly, yeah, one hundred percent. That that you've said that way better than I did. Like that's that's the thing. Like a groin squeeze, we can set a threshold that we think is not suitable for someone, and then we can decide if we act off the back of it. <clears throat> but I think the minute when we used to have more dashboardy type systems, the problem is is you spend more time discussing why the dashboard is rubbish than actually making the decision to make decisions about. Whereas now, like our performance meetings that we have, have really evolved to the point where we're only discussing things that matter. And that might be like sprint exposure or like consecutive games or like if someone's come in to start for more consecutive games, how many scrums are they doing? Like that kind of stuff that I think really matters is now what we're talking about. Whereas before when we had dashboards, we'd kind of put it up and be like, yeah, but... I know that's red, but that's because of the, and you, you're like, we're talking more about how flawed our system is than we're talking about the actual outcome. The idea of the system is to inform train decisions. And we weren't doing that bit. We were just discussing about how crap the system was. Um, I think that's where we're trying to get to now is like discussion we have, like what's the decision? What's the outcome? What does it change? Otherwise, you're just going back and forth on a really nice discussion about like the theory of training load and stuff. What do you think is your kind of biggest blind spot that you face on a daily basis? You know, what where's the load? What's the loading area that you think you've got the least idea of? Uh, I think like readiness of athletes because I think it's a. I'm, I'm sure there's other people out there who a definitely do have a better grasp of it, or at least perceive themselves to have a better grasp of it. Like, I don't. I find it very hard because you go through wellness scores and like I've had situations where like guys wellness scores are like pretty bad, but then they've played the game of their lives. Um, we don't currently, <clears throat> and I'm trying to change, we, we're hoping to change this. We don't currently have like objective, I'd say data sets about like readiness to train, whether it's like jump testing or um, HRV or anything like that. We don't currently have anything objective. So I think our blind spot really at the moment is readiness. Is that is your kind of solution around that? Is that one of the more conversational areas then? Because you know, if you've got less tech to uh, inform your decisions around it, does that then become the bigger kind of face to face dialogue for you? Yeah, I think we start. We we always we've started to lean a lot more on conversations with players. Like I think one of the biggest mistakes I made when I first came into it was you set up this wellness system and. Um, so long as it looks pretty good on a spreadsheet or wherever it is, as a sports scientist, you're kind of happy because you're like, yeah, like this bit comes through here and it feeds in and I can see these guys who have had poor sleep. But what you forget is that really quickly, if the guys are just filling it out on their phones and you're never speaking to them, it just becomes a black box to them. They're just like, why am I filling this out? Like nothing changes. No one ever asks about why I'm sore and all that kind of stuff. Um, and whilst I was taking the information out of it and trying to have these discussions with members of staff, I was never going back to the person putting the data in, so they never found the value in it. Now we're way more, and the medical team's played a massive part in this, like because they have so much more of than I do, more contact 
with the players. They are really hot on speaking to guys who've had poor sleep, who are sore, who are, um, you know, whether it's like body sight soreness or if it's just general soreness, if it's um, feeling less ready. They're great at that. And also our S&TC team, because they spend so much time with the players, they're very good at building relationships with players. So like maybe even if the wellness is not necessarily like that indicative of their state, through the conversations they'll have, they often know a lot more about what's going on in their lives and how they're feeling, which to give you more colour to the numbers, which will actually gives you a better discussion. Yeah. I don't know, like having already had this discussion with you about um, – not trying to search for one number i don't think it's worth i don't think we're trying to search for like oh like can we find like the drop do this or and i'm not saying they don't like i know in a lot of other settings um like dave hamilton is a guy that i've listened to a lot on podcasts and really like the way that he thinks i know that he uses them a lot in his hockey setup previously so i'm not saying they don't work i'm just saying that I don't know in rugby if it would quantify all the issues you have around rugby because it's not as running and high speed running based as hockey. <clears throat> I don't know if the main fatigue driver in rugby is all those running outputs. I think in rugby, like you can do relatively little running and you can do um, some jump testing and nothing really comes out of it that's indicative of fatigue, but the body's just battered. Like, that's the thing about rugby is it's so physical. It's so collision heavy. Like, I think everyone everyone involved in sport now, like, knows that post a rugby game, it kind of looks like a car crash in a dressing room. Yeah. Um, that's the bit that is it is quantified by talking to people. Um, so I don't, <clears throat> I'm in, like, two places currently. Like, I want to investigate more things that are indicative of readiness. I don't think I'm going to find a one number or a one assessment type thing. Um We've been down the route of HRV years ago and in our populace, we didn't really find that it was massively helpful. Um, that said, I think in other sports, let's go and work in other sports that were maybe more aerobically fine-tuned, I think it may have some benefits there. Um, but at the moment, like, I want to find something that helps. I don't feel like if when Guzzi asked me, like, have we got a good measure of readiness? I don't, I say to him, like, I don't feel like we do, but I don't. I'm still trying to figure out in my head what we could use to get there to give a better answer. Um, so yeah, that's the blind spot I feel like we have. It's a it's a messy sport, isn't it? To say the least, um, from a from a game standpoint yeah. and, and a scientific standpoint. Like I'm, I'm I imagine that in most from the outside, I think other sports are simple, but I bet you most sports that I hear I, the more I talk to people about other sports like the nuances are the important bits um, and that's why I always find it interesting when people try and apply a one number one ratio thing to all of these sports like basketball for instance I'm like looking at it like so I love basketball uh, like it's my one of my favourite sports but I watch it and I'm like, like there's so much jumping there's so much like multi-directional movement like I don't really know like I'd be interested I'm not saying it wouldn't I'd be interested to know how they go about doing all of that and what they see is valuable in that as well because it's so it must be so stressful on the body because of the amount of like changes of direction and decelerations accelerating in terms of the jumping and at different angles and all that kind of stuff that actually like i'd love to know how they do that i think basketball is an interesting one because the i think the running loads and, and the change direction loads within that are higher than the actual jumping loads themselves um you know oh, really? yeah. Yeah, there's a, I can't remember the, the author, but there's a paper that shows the kind of different loading 
the, the basketball players go through and the running loads are actually higher than the jumps. They're actually good at the jumping piece, yeah. but I guess, you know, yeah. quite, quite crudely, seven foot men running and changing direction is not the most efficient, yeah. um, efficient thing anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Let's finally uh, get on to conditioning because I know that's a, a big kind of interest of yours professionally. Um, open-endedly, how is conditioning strategized or broken down and approached at your place? Um, so I think the way we try and approach it, we look at the, we know that like being the best runner will not necessarily make you the best rugby player. So like the guys who are top of our conditioning test in pre-season. So we use like a, a it's under Bronco. So I think it comes from rugby league where you basically go 20 meters out and back, 40 out and back, 60 out and back five times. Uh, so it's like a 1.2 K shuttle test. We know, and we never, we've never voiced this to players. Like we're not saying that if you top this test, that you're going to be the best rugby player ever. But what we do know is that if you're more aerobically fit, you'll cover from, uh, bounce of effort in the game better and also after the game better. And we also know the fitter you are, the more likely you are to get to more important passages of play when we want you to get there and you will have more energy to reduce explosive efforts. So I guess that's the first thing to say. So we running demands. That's the easiest thing for us to quantify. Like it's easy to get a stopwatch out and quantify how what someone's Bronco score is, and we've we've got a decent amount of data on that. Um, and intriguingly, like the guys who actually are the better players often are at the top of their position groups. Um, and those guys who aren't, I think, when you chat to the coaches, they'll be the first to say that if that guy was fitter, it would be better because you'd then do more X or more Y. Um, so then what we're trying to get a better handle on is then the contact element of it. Um, and when we first started off, the, the thing that we had or the problem we had in our approach is that if you tried to make it too much like the game and therefore had like a not a lot, but some running in between collision elements of your test, you basically just biased the good runners too much. Um, and that's not really what we wanted. We didn't want it to, we kind of wanted it to be a, a separate element. Um, but on the one end of the spectrum, we know we have guys' initial and maximum sprint momentums, which we think is important for collisions. And we have their max speed, which we think is important for evading collisions. And then the other end, we have our Bronco speed, so our average speed in a Bronco. So those are our sort of two ends, like our. Um, we don't set it up like an aerobic speed reserve, but we have our max output and then we have like our our capacity output, if you will. And then so what we're looking at is like, do we have guys who fall into a position of being heavy, powerful, fast, not particularly fit? And then are we looking at guys who are very, very fit, but not particularly heavy, powerful or fast? And everyone sits somewhere in that continuum. Um so once we've got an idea of where these guys fall, and we we've um, rather than testing it, we've we've got tasks that we do with the guys that are, you know, with the type five guys, wherever it's setting up a scrum sled, then setting up a couple of um, contact stations using the pads and sausages, and we'll time guys, and you'll be able to watch guys, and you can see the guys who find these kind of tasks relatively easy, and the guys who struggle, and then with the knowledge you have about these players, like if you've got guys who are just very weak in terms of like gym weak, like they're, you know, their bench press, their squat, whatever lift is not particularly, um, 
strong and this is a guy who can run for days it's quite obvious where that work needs to go so we try and fit conditioning into the hole so we know where where what you're trying to actually improve them as an athlete not just the conditioning piece um then once once we've got this the idea of where everyone sits which is obviously like an organic thing so year to year we know each the it's the new guys that come in that we're trying to find more information out the guys who've been there for like gaz has been there over a decade so he's known some of our players since they've been in academy so he has a pretty good idea and has all the data as well on where they've they've been and what they're good at and what's changed over time so once we've got that uh data together we we try and use games and rugby specific stuff as much as possible because it ticks two boxes it allows them to work on their skills and their fitness in a specific way um i know some people do not like uh games based stuff because they feel like some people can hide or not even hide but you've got a less fit guy he can't even keep up with the game enough to get the stimulus to get fitter and so we're mindful of that so the guys who can't we then do 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 we uh we do running sessions with them on the to to try and bridge that gap because we know that our running sessions can often way exceed those uh, demands of a rugby session when you purely measure it in terms of like meters per minute or time spent above your um, bronco speed. So that's kind of how we've started to operate. Um, and rugby looks after a lot of that. We're looking at implementing a confirmation test, which I think a lot of places do now, where you use a sub-max running test and a warm-up to assess someone's aerobic readiness and aerobic fitness. And that kind of slots into the readiness piece that we talked about earlier. Um, and the other thing that we do, um, I, from a cultural perspective, it's something that Paul Gustard drives fairly hard, but also from a fitness perspective, we get guys. So we have <clears throat> any one time 58 guys in the squad. Um, and that means that only 30 of them are potentially doing the rugby game, the rugby task on field. Um, now, once you've got injuries and stuff, you're often left with about anywhere from of five to 15 guys on the sideline. So sometimes that will be games-based, like a coach will come out and the coach will do games-based stuff. A lot of the time it's running-based. So what we're trying to do there is if they're out, rather than standing around on the sidelines, we're trying to get them to do fitness-based stuff, which allows us to keep their fitness at a high level. Previous to that pool coming in, the boys used to just sort of stand on the side. And what we found is that if you were not involved in the match day squad, your training load was so, so much lower than anyone else that then the jump up when you weren't called upon is probably what actually led to injury. Whereas now we have, um, because of the sideline running, most people get the same sort of stimulus we want out of a rugby session. And then we also have another rugby session on a Friday. So if you're not selected for Saturday, you will end up doing an hour's worth of fairly intense, like very intense, in fact, rugby on a Friday. Um, that we think then best prepares them for when they are called upon. Um, I know you said Lindley, so hopefully that wasn't too rambly. But uh, no, no, that's yeah. perfect. And I guess, I guess men, even just like from a psychological standpoint, um, them being athletes, being able to push themselves rather than being on the sideline is only good for them and their kind of uh, their mentality around the game while they're off. It also gives us an opportunity that to those guys that are modified, we try and. Um, like the coaches are so open and really helpful in terms of that 
if we identify guys that need to be modified, we can then cycle them off the pitch. Someone else goes on to get the benefit of practicing rugby and then we can rest that guy. So rather than running him on the side, if he's played a lot or if he's showing signs of, um, you know, like if some key markers are down, like we can then stop him from <clears throat> doing extra by not having him run on the sideline. Um, and yeah, it, it, at the moment, like it, it works fairly well. Like I think sometimes what we're, or why I'm certainly trying to get better at is a lot of these guys who come out onto the sidelines may not always be your stars and you don't want it to become monotonous for them. And you don't want it to become something where they just feel like they're doing endless running. So we, we try and like, Ed, Al, uh, Bish, Gaz, the other SNC guys do a fantastic job of trying to vary what we do with them, but getting the same outcome. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, I think we're on the clock, mate, but I've, I've got to say a huge thank you to you um, for being, uh, well, to you and both Quins, I guess, for for coming on and being so transparent about what you do and, and how you operate technically in your role. I mean, it's, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me, mate. It's, uh, yeah, it's been, I've been really enjoyable. And where can people follow you? Are you active online on like Twitter and Instagram and, and the usuals? I'm trying to be better. So it's, it's, uh, I think if you search for Tom Batchelor, I think my actual handle on Twitter is Bachelor Tom, all one word. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's where I do most of my stuff. Um, well, that's where I try and do most of my stuff. I'm trying to get better at it. So hopefully I'll start actually, now I've got some more time on my hands at the moment. I'll try and be a bit better at, uh, tweeting cool well we'll um we'll find that and we'll link it in the show notes anyway so people can um people can find you easily um no, yeah no mate, thanks again for coming on and it's it's been great to chat to you no really enjoyed it mate thank you again big thank you to tom bachelor for coming on the show and especially for being so open and honest about how he does things at harlequins really appreciated the rare level of detail and specificity that he goes into so that we can understand the sports science approach at Harlequins as an organisation. As I said before the episode, we will probably release episodes more frequently for a period of time, so make sure you're subscribed to not miss anything that we release. If you're enjoying the content, then please share our podcast with your network or colleagues, and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at informperformance or on Twitter at informpod. As usual, the episode show notes can be found at informperformance.com if you'd like to check anything that we've mentioned. And in the meantime, if you, the listeners, have any guest suggestions or perhaps you are someone that would make a good guest on the show, then please don't hesitate to get in touch with us, uh, either through our website or on social media. Thank you very much for listening to the Informed Performance podcast. Keep yourselves healthy and safe during this time and we will see you soon.